Welcome to Talking Kotlin. On this episode, I'm sitting down with two gentlemen from MeshCloud discussing server-side development and microservices with Kotlin. Welcome to the show, guys. Yeah, welcome. Yeah, uh, hello. Thank you for having us. Oh, thank you for coming on. Would you like to, because there are three of us now, if you want to introduce yourselves, um, one of you go first. Yeah, sure. Uh, so I'll start. My name is Johannes Rudolf. Um, I'm from Germany, um, as is Stefan, who's sitting in with me. We're both uh, from MeshCloud, uh, running the technical team there. And uh, MeshCloud is a, a cloud computing provider um, with the idea at the core that we use technology that's based on open source. Um, because we kind of recognize that in the market, especially in Germany, there is a huge demand for uh, using cloud platforms that are trustworthy. And uh, many companies also want to use uh, these cloud technologies in a private setting. And we develop technology uh, to manage multiple uh, uh, private and public clouds together. So we run OpenStack and Cloud Foundry and also Kubernetes uh, for our customers. And at the same time, we also have a public cloud offering uh, with these services and our tools allow customers to kind of manage all of these things like from a single pane of glass. And um, yeah, so um, that's me. Um, and yeah, Stefan. Yeah, and hello, I'm Stefan Tom. Uh, I'm also from Germany and I'm working at MeshCloud uh, since August this year. And uh, I am the lead developer of the backend. And, uh, of, of our software and um, yeah, have been learning Kotlin here at MeshCloud. Nice. And it's interesting that you bring up this topic of private clouds. Is there is there a lot of demand now in terms of private clouds? Um, I think especially, uh, I mean, Germany might be, or Europe in general might be a very sensitive market when it comes to cloud computing. There's lots of issues with privacy and also many companies are, you know, they have their company secrets, uh, uh, one of, uh, German's uh, largest industrial uh, uh, companies uh, that's in the like in the top 30, one of top 30 companies that are also listed at the stock exchange is our customer and they have sensitive workloads um, and uh, they want to run them in a private cloud, uh, which is based on Cloud Foundry um, and OpenStack. And they also want to use the same technology as they have in the private cloud, also in the public cloud so that they can transfer applications and can reuse skills and stuff. So um, yeah, there's lots of demand for private cloud. There's lots of great technologies, uh, especially uh, exciting new technologies like Kubernetes, uh, uh, or but also Cloud Foundry for developers. Um, but you need a way of managing all those things. Uh, like, you know, the, the customer I was talking about, they don't have just one cloud, they actually have 10 uh, and, and uh, you know, instances of, of Cloud Foundry and OpenStack and they plan on rolling out more. So they need tools to kind of uh, manage uh, these things and applications, whether they're in the private or in the public cloud. You're hosting your own data centers then? Yeah, so um, it's not actually our own data centers, but we're partnering with existing data centers to host our cloud. So right now we have two cloud uh, sites in Germany um, that we run and we plan on adding more as, as the demand uh, develop, uh, develops, yes. Yeah, and I was going to ask that because, you know, there is, of course, this, especially in Europe, as you say, and, and for our listeners that might not be aware, May 2018 is going to be an important date in Europe because this amazing thing called GDPR comes into effect, right? right? Which yes. is the general data um, protection regulations or, or what have you, mm -hmm. uh, which 
is like cookie warning elevated to <laughs> 300. <laughs> Absolutely. With 300,000 times the fines as well if you get it wrong. Right? <laughs> so the whole data and, and privacy thing in, in Europe is, I would say that, I would say that probably in the US it's a little bit more relaxed than 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 here in Europe. Yeah, and it, it's also a matter of the awareness, kind of. At, at the end of the day, one thing is uh, you know having all the regulations figured out and complying. The other thing is you know uh, especially for like we have lots of customers in the in the software as a service business, and sometimes they handle you know financial data or things like that. It's also a bit of a trust, you know, with your customers. And, and if you say, oh, we're hosted in Ireland, you know, uh, uh, at a U.S. provider, that doesn't go down well with every kind of customer. So um, there's also this kind of like feeling thing to it, you know, which is not 100 percent, you know, everything that's on paper, on legal paper. But it's also, you know, about being sure that your data is the perception, safe. essentially. Right. Yeah. And. You said that you're running all of this with OpenStack and other technologies, right? Right. So, so and where does, um, I mean, we, when we were discussing, uh, because we got in touch on, on a topic that uh, it was about Talking Kotlin podcast, and um, you actually reached out to me saying that, you know, that, and, and not only you, I mean, quite a few number of people have, have said to me, Hey, you know, you're, you're covering quite a bit of Android, but you know, Kotlin is more than just Android. I'm like, no, you don't say really, I didn't know that. <laughs> and, and so when you said that, Hey, you know, we're doing some stuff with server side, I'm like, awesome. We need to, we need to chat, right? We need to do this. Uh, we need to do this podcast. So tell me where, where Kotlin is fitting in here. Yeah, so um, the first few products, so MeshCloud is, is still fairly young. We've been working on the product for like one and a half year now. And uh, the first bits, you know, were started with the team. Most of the guys knew Java, so, so uh, we started out on the JVM and we had lots of Java code. And, and I came from a background in .NET, so I did lots of C-sharp work and F-sharp work. Uh, also, coincidentally, also with Xamarin, so I've, I've been into mobile as well. But um, then we started developing Java and, and then one you know, for me, it felt like going back a century, uh, you know, or at least a decade, you know, uh, in terms of developer productivity, you know, it felt so verbose and you needed to write all these lots of things and, uh, you know, like uh, repeating the type of a variable, there's no type inference and, and lambdas had this, you know, boilerplate feeling syntax to it. And Yeah, generally verbose overall. Yeah, and, and, and I was like, you know, I did a lot of things in IoT and there's this thing like signal to noise ratio, you know, going on when you work with sensor data. And I feel for developers, it's the same thing. You know, we read code all day and, and we need to figure out business stuff, you know, that we want to do with code and not the mechanics. Yeah. And Java to me felt like, you know, had like 80 percent mechanics and just, you know, you, you could could not see the, the forest for the trees, kind of, you know, that's that's how reading Java code felt to me, you know, coming coming from C sharp. And that's that's when I was uh, uh, so relieved when I saw that uh, Google kind of like gave the official blessing to uh, Kotlin in the sense of, you know, saying, OK, it's a mainstream, it's going to be a mainstream language. And uh, that's when I decided, OK, so we got to try this out. And it kind of really reminded me of the, the times when 
in .NET, they started, you know, adding all these new capabilities to F Sharp, uh, uh, you know, and kind of like Kotlin was to Java to a certain extent, similar to the what what F Sharp was to C Sharp back in the days. I mean, C Sharp also evolved, of course, and 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 integrated lots of this these aspects. But I saw that that Kotlin had all these multi-paradigm things that I loved about C Sharp and. It had a much cleaner syntax, and yeah, that's when we essentially decided uh, to jump ship. <laughs> and uh, nowadays we have like 70% Kotlin, and we're moving slowly uh, but steadily uh, away from Java and trying to have uh, zero lines of Java by the end of next quarter. So um, that's that's nice. And you said that um, so you made the jump when the after Google I/O, uh, yeah, essentially after after learning about it, you know, because the I think it was made long before we actually started. But I I didn't, you know, uh, I wasn't involved in the JVM ecosystem at all until this point. And this is interesting that you actually didn't make the jump towards Kotlin until after Google I/O, and you did this outside of the scope of Android, which is which is fine, but it feels a little bit more strange in that why would you have waited until Google I.O.? Or, or you know, why did this, did this push you? Because you're not doing Android. Yeah. <laughs> well, it was kind of, um, I knew or I've heard about Kotlin, that it exists, but I didn't quite know what it is. And just hearing about, you know, all the buzz that was going on after uh, the Google announcement, uh, made me look at it for the first time. I knew Scala actually uh, from university, uh, so I knew that there's and, and and I heard about Groovy and that there's all these different languages for the JVM, but you know Scala felt a bit far out there, you know, in terms of uh, you know, yeah, well everything, <laughs> and um, yeah, so so that's actually took the first look at Kotlin just after this event, and then I immediately liked it and and. Uh, so and, and looked for a way to try it out essentially, and um, that was very easy as well. Uh, you know, we as many I, I've heard many episodes of of the, the Talking Cotton podcast, and we did the same thing as everyone else. It seems uh, we started with tests, so um, we were using uh, the Spectrum uh, uh, framework uh, for doing tests. It's essentially a uh, I don't know Yasmin style BDD inspired testing style um, that it enables. So you have like describe and it blocks and you can nest them and uh, you, you get very uh, well readable specs. And it's especially useful for like end-to-end -end testing, which we do a lot of um, because you can also describe what's happening and the context setup like in a human uh, readable string and then do all your work in a block. And Kotlin really uh, helped us reduce a lot of boilerplate in, in these kind of tests. You know, we were always running into the 100 characters line limit, you know, that we set ourselves uh, with Java and with Kotlin, it was like very easy to fit in. And uh, the, the, also the block syntax that it has matches really well with the Spectrum suite because you get like this, this easily readable layout of all the different uh, nested blocks of code uh, using the Kotlin, uh, you know, the trailing lock uh, function call syntax where it doesn't go into the parentheses of the function. Yeah. And I actually, 
when you when you mention Spectrum, I, you know, you hadn't heard of Kotlin uh, until Google I/O, which kind of invalidates the past five years of my life. But thank <laughs> you, no worries. Uh, but I hadn't heard of Spectrum, uh, and I was kind of surprised about it because it. I don't know if you've actually heard of Spec S P E K. Yeah, okay, yes. Yeah. Um, so I, I started that a few years ago, and now um, a couple of other folks are are mostly active on it, and and it does feel kind of similar. Yeah. And I was just trying to figure out uh, how far back this Spectrum project goes. Uh, yeah, so we already had Spectrum uh, with Java, uh, obviously. Uh, we're aware of uh, Spec, actually, and, and uh, we have been evaluating of, of migrating towards, but then it's actually turned out it's kind of like the same thing, and we now have like over 2,000 tests, and we were like, okay, so we're going to you know, refactor the whole suite, you know. And no, 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 absolutely. I mean, I, I was just surprised. I, I'd never heard of it. So that, that's, uh, that's very cool. Yeah, but they're, they're very similar. So we actually looked at SPEC as well. And um, there's quite a few things where I think, you know, uh, SPEC has advantages. Like we have in Spectrum, one of the things that, that's buggering us a little is, is that you have this thing when you have like a before each block and you want to set up some context and you have you need to kind of have a bar reference. Uh, so that you can mutate something inside the block and then then pass it on to the next. There's some boilerplate involved with that. Um, I don't know if we can get around it with spec, but that's one one of our motivations of of maybe revisiting that in the future. Sure. Yeah. So you started out with the test, and uh, so now you said that you've got uh, what percentage of your code, which is Kotlin? Yeah, about seventy percent. We have it running in in our concourse uh, pipeline. Uh, we have a, a code stats thing uh, running, so it reminds us uh, how <laughs> that we want to get rid of Java and and how much there is left. I think at this point, it's it's some tenth. Uh, so I'm assuming that seventy percent of your code is in tests, right? Because no, 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 that would be just really <laughs> awesome. You know? it's like, <laughs> no, it's not that much, but um, actually, so we started with tests and then gradually started uh, migrating uh, service code uh, and, and backend code and libraries. And uh, some of the libraries, uh, our internal libraries, we also we already managed to get get rid of all uh, Java. So uh, our build only invokes uh, the Kotlin compiler and no more Java C, um, which is great. Um, what server-side technology are you using here? Yeah, we are using Spring Boot uh, on server-side. So uh, still Spring Boot uh, 1.5. Um, so uh, yeah, not the new uh, Spring 5. We've taken a look at it uh, and um, at Spring Boot 2, but currently we're not at it. Um, but it's also pretty cool to use Kotlin uh, with uh, Spring, uh, Spring Boot 1.5. Um, there are just a few things you have to know that, that you have to handle correctly, but then it works really smooth. So, you know, a lot of, a lot of our listeners are, have heard of Spring, um, and many people do use it. But just for clarity, can you explain the difference between Spring and Spring Boot? Uh, the difference between Spring and Spring Boot? Um, yeah, so uh, Spring Boot uh, is um, a bit of... Uh, bootstrapping tool around Spring. So it helps you to configure Spring as you want it. Um, so for example, there's there are different frameworks within the Spring framework, like uh, Spring Security or something like that. And it's always pretty difficult to set this up correctly. 
And with Spring Boot, uh, you have different uh, Spring Boot starter packages in Gradle or Maven um, that help you to auto-configure your application and uh, you can get a, a Spring Boot application up running really quickly. Yeah, and this was added on after Spring, right? I mean, it was kind of added on as a, as a exactly for the reason you're mentioning, right? That it was just too difficult sometimes to get up and running, so let's try and make it simpler. Yes, exactly. Right. So I always wonder, like, why do they do this then with the versioning? Like, because now you say, you know, we're using Spring 4 with Spring Boot 1.5. We're not using Spring 5 with Spring Boot 2.0. <laughs> yeah, it's completely puzzling. And and then there's all the different sub-projects. Um, so uh, we're also heavily invested in uh, Spring Data REST. Um, so we're trying to build a proper REST API um, with hypermedia and all these things. And there's this project called, is it Spring Data or Spring uh, Spring Spring REST? Yeah, Spring Data and yeah, there, there is Spring REST and then there's the integration of Spring Data with and that's Spring, Spring Data, Data REST <laughs> that also uses HeyDOS uh, and uh, yeah. So we should have actually a kind of like a certification program just to figure out the versioning yeah. of software. Yeah, but but in the end, when you use a Spring Boot application, you don't have to worry about the versioning so much because yeah, when you set up a simple Spring or just a Spring application and uh, then you want to add the different libraries and so on, you have to know about the compatibility between all those different uh, frameworks that you're using. And with Spring Boot, uh, you just use the starter and they uh, have also dependency management. So you only get the other dependencies that interact well with with all so the other ones. So it's kind of like a blessed blessed versions. Uh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so, so in the end, you you just you just have to know about the Spring Boot version, and then uh, what which different Spring versions in the background are used uh, shouldn't matter to you because yeah, Spring Boot hides yeah. this all for you. Yeah. And if you ever run the like Gradle dependencies uh, uh, on on your build, you know, you, it's, it's like. It was kind of funny because uh, my first thing at MeshCloud that I started with was uh, with our front-end application, um, you know, which is an Angular app. And, you know, there's all this, all the back-end guys, they constantly, you know, they, they make jokes of the front-end guys that they have like a library for, I don't know, doing a string uh, starts with search or something, you know, or pad left was the... The kind of uh, <laughs> yeah left pad <laughs> yeah or left pad yeah that, that was it and and they say like you know all these node projects have like thousands of dependencies and if you look at the Spring project I was like yeah it's the same isn't it <laughs> uh, anyway so um, so and coming back to the versioning you're using Spring four and you said that obviously it doesn't have some of those niceties that were added with uh, Spring five in terms of first class support for Kotlin so where are the main pitfalls there. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm not sure what will be solved uh, with Spring 5 uh, and the native Kotlin support they have, uh, but uh, the, the first thing that strikes you is um, that all classes are final by default in Kotlin uh, and uh, Spring uses this proxy approach and so uh, they uh, create a proxy for every Spring component and uh, therefore all your classes have to be open. Uh, so we started implementing it implementing it uh, by yeah adding the open keyword to to all uh, classes and uh, and methods but uh, there is also a great uh, com uh, plugin for for cradle and maven uh, that supports you in that and makes all the spring components open by default 
So I think that that is the first thing that strikes you when when you want to develop a Spring application uh, with with Kotlin. But that works for both uh, version four and five, right? Yeah, yeah, I think so. Not yeah. sure whether there is even another approach for Spring five, uh, but I think not because the proxies will still be there. <laughs> um, yeah, so so this is uh, one of one of the main things. Uh, and Intelli and the, the great thing is IntelliJ uh, assists you with that. It, yeah. it detects that you're actually using the plugin. And uh, if you have like a redundant open modifier on a method uh, in Kotlin, it will tell you that it's now redundant because you're using the plugin. And at the same time, if you have something like from the initializer, you're calling a now open by default method, it will warn you and tell you, okay, uh, you're, you're doing you know this dreaded never call a virtual function from a constructor thing. And um, so that's actually very great uh, doing, doing that yeah. with the IntelliJ support. Uh, Stefan, you, your background is uh, Java or is it C-sharp as well? No, it's Java. I've been a Java developer for more than 10 years now. Uh, and yeah, I've always taken a look at uh, different programming languages. I also had a look at Scala in the past, but well, it was just uh, <laughs> all that uh, extremely functional stuff and all the possibilities you have there. Uh, yeah, it, it was just uh, the learning curve was, was just too high for me to, to invest all that time to learn it. And uh, that was also the, the fascinating thing, thing when I came here to MeshCloud. And uh, yeah, from the first day on, uh, I, I was reading uh, Kotlin code. Back then, we were just at about 20 or 30% Kotlin, I think. Um, but uh, yeah, I, I was able to understand everything immediately. Uh, perhaps some of the constructs, I, like the Elvis operator or stuff like that, uh, I had to get familiar with. Um, but uh, besides that, it was for Java developer, extremely easy to understand and also to write Kotlin code. Um, yeah. Yeah, I wonder how things will be in a couple of years when more and more people start doing uh, what you would call idiomatic Kotlin or maybe moving a little bit more to to functions, like, you know, not, not focusing so much around, you know, all of the additional how would how could you say ceremony that you have to create sometimes with classes that are essentially kind of you know uh they're not providing value on top of the behavior that you're trying to get at right, right? yeah um but the reason i was asking this is because lately i've been looking at different code bases with kotlin and different people obviously write different ways right uh but i've noticed some patterns starting to emerge and and some of these patterns are a lot of people start to use object uh, directly, so they they no longer write create uh, classes mm -hmm. and then you know instantiate that class, but they just start to create objects. Uh, some people don't even create objects or or classes; they just put a whole bunch of functions in in a file, uh, kind of like JavaScript, right? Uh, have you noticed either of you in terms of your coding habits changing or, or moving towards? A specific style when you're writing Kotlin code? Um, well, I, I can certainly say for one component that we uh, newly developed uh, just recently or, or took a different approach and did essentially a complete rewrite of, um, which processes a lot of, you know, events coming from the clouds, um, that I was able to use a completely functional approach, which is very similar to what you described. So there's no, not like objects with deep behavior, but there's like, you know, objects that are data and then there's functions working on those and everything's immutable and it's, it's easy to parallelize the, the code. 
and that actually was very similar to to what I recently or uh, previously did in in, in F sharp, and Kotlin was you know able to to handle that you know so you can you can and that's what I find great about like multi paradigm languages you can use one style where it fits like plain old object oriented. Uh, stuff, especially if you have to interface with Spring, which is like very heavily uh, object-oriented. You have these deep inheritance hierarchies of things and then extending behavior and stuff, and you need to work with that. And But on the other hand, if you can carve out, you know, a tiny portion of your domain and it's it, it lends itself very well to kind of like a functional approach, you can do that with Kotlin. And it's, it's the same language. And we also find ourselves, um, I think at the beginning, we kind of like used the, you know, uh, control shift alt K uh, shortcut a lot to kind of like convert this file from Kotlin to Java. Uh, sorry, the other way around, uh, from Java to Kotlin. Um, but we found ourselves using more and more idioms and, and pointing them out to each other in code reviews. Um, so yes. um, we're like, you know, you have this kind of like if else, if else block, for example, and and someone says, okay, this is like, this is 12 lines. You can do it like with uh, four lines with a when block, you know, uh, or the Elvis thing or um, the... Uh, but keeping it comprehensible, because right? uh, that's the key thing. I, right? I, would, I would actually argue keeping it more comprehensible, like especially like if else branches and stuff, it's a lot easier if you have it, you know, no, no braces, just like single lines with focused code. And, and that's where I'm coming back to like signal to noise thing, you know, in, in code. Um, I find that Kotlin allows us to have a lot more signal in, in less lines without getting like too dense, you know, to comprehend. Um, it takes out all the the noise, essentially, you know, you have clean constructs for, for certain things. And when, when is a great uh, uh, thing. Yeah, of course. Yeah, I was looking through some of the blog posts uh, that you were writing and you had like one of the things that you like most about Kotlin was when, uh, when, which is, but you were focusing it on the aspect of using when as an expression as opposed to a statement, right? Um, in the end, we use it for both now. Um, yeah. Oh, that's interesting. Any, any reason you moved away from just using it as an expression? <laughs> well, at first, kind of like when, when you start refactoring code, this kind of like, uh, uh, when you're coming from Java, you know, this, I know in Kotlin, like everything's, there's no more statements, everything's an expression. Um, it's kind of like weird when IntelliJ for the first time tells you, uh, you know, lift out the return from this when block. Um, and, but nowadays I think we're, we're starting to use that whenever it's possible because it's, it's very convenient and, and we got so used to it. And it's the same like with try blocks and everything. Uh, but at the beginning, I think we were a bit hesitant, you know, about, uh, you know, especially when you're going in and refactoring stuff, you want to keep it like very similar. Ashwin, you want to talk about the way kind of like we figured out how to move Kotlin, uh, uh, Java code to Kotlin? Um, yeah, yeah. So um, the way we move uh, from our Java code to Kotlin, uh, at the beginning, uh, we were, um, yeah, uh, always uh, working on, on, on our features. And then we uh, had a... Um, just decided, okay, now we're at Java class and we want to convert it. And then it was sometimes a bit difficult in the review um, to to uh, to see what, what actually happened. Uh, so a better approach here is to to go and um, have a look uh, 
or at first uh, do, do, do a separate commit for, for converting to Kotlin. And we even uh, later on did it that way that we created at first a pull request for the classes that we intend to touch with this feature um, to convert those files to Kotlin and afterwards um, do the actual change so we can see what, what, what really happens uh, for the feature. And how do you deal with version control there? Because obviously, you know, if you, I mean, there's different uh, techniques in, in terms of this conversion and, uh, and maintaining the history of the file. What, what do you do? Um, yeah, basically, uh, we are just uh, renaming the file or just, just using the, the, the auto conversion uh, by IntelliJ. And uh, yeah, it depends on how much uh, it changes. Um, yeah, we let Git handle it. Uh, so. Um, so yeah, so essentially you're doing a convert uh, a rename. Oh, sorry, sorry, you're doing the conversion, which causes a rename, which Git interprets as a rename. So essentially, it will keep the history, and then from there you move on forward. Yeah, I'm I'm not sure it will work in all cases. Yeah. Uh, and, and track it. It hasn't been a big deal for us. Uh, I mean, we're in a very fast evolving. We're a startup, right? So we have a very fast evolving code base. So. We don't need to like you know track ten years of history of changes uh, to file just because we don't have it. <laughs> um, yeah. So, but are, are you implying that non-startups are really slow? <laughs> <laughs> oh, not that. It's just if you I don't know if you if if you have a code base where you need to go back in time to understand what a previous developer did to that file. Well, I think then you have other problems, you know. Uh, <laughs> but um, so, so we didn't have that. We try to keep our files also very small, you know. We, we have, you know, have good separation of concerns and things. And that certainly helps. So I, I, it hasn't been an issue for us uh, being able to track renames back to Java, for example. And then you have this thing that you mentioned previously, which is, uh, kind of monitor in terms of lines of code per programming language. Is that right? Uh, yeah, well, it, it's actually like low tech at its best. It's uh, a script called, uh, I think, uh, clock.pl, like C-L-O-C uh, for count lines of code. It's a Perl script. It's on GitHub. Someone developed it. Uh, it's, it's an open source script. And uh, in Concourse, we just, so we're using Concourse CI, which is a whole topic in itself, I think. Uh, but uh, it, that that allowed us very easily. We just spun up a Docker container that had this 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 clock.pl file in it, and that just runs over our repository. It's it's like one line of Bash, literally. So uh, that's kind of like a low tech approach. But we we always like you know we continuously every week when we do retrospective, we look at uh, the the current status uh, in our build and and um, we had a little celebration when we crossed the 50%. Uh, Thing, you know, and uh, right. And that started back in, I would guess, around June, right? Uh, yeah, yeah. That's 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 when we added the script. So we started migrating to Kotlin previously, but we kind of noticed that it wasn't kind of like clear. And we were also growing the team, so it wasn't kind of like clear. Well, is our policy, you know, around Kotlin? You know, we were always having it like, you know, okay, try to do it in Kotlin, you know, would you please? And and then we kind of like made the official stance, okay, we're going 100% Kotlin and eliminating Java is a is kind of like a, a goal and with every feature that you work towards like Boy Scout rule kind of thing, you know, clean up the Java mess and uh, <laughs> convert it to Kotlin. And 
Yeah, I'm looking at your stats right now, and I see that also you have uh, TypeScript. Uh, it, do you have any plans to maybe start using Kotlin on the front end as opposed to TypeScript? It looks in intriguing, I must admit. Um, so we're using Angular and uh, TypeScript uh, in the front end, and it's a fairly large front end application because it, it talks to all these different cloud APIs. Um, it talks to our microservices backend, and it does it does a lot. As I mentioned, you know, we're all about integrating all these different technologies and allowing people to easily manage them and have projects that span these technologies. So for, you can have a project that has like virtual machines and OpenStack, but you have also kind of like microservices deployed to Cloud Foundry and, and you have it all managed from a single pane of glass. So the front end really does a lot. Um, I'm not sure if um, Kotlin would provide us a big benefit in the sense, I think if you have like kind of like this isomorphic code is I think the term they use for it, like you have the same code and data models on the back end as you have on the front end. Um, I think that wouldn't work or that's not a big deal for us because we're talking a lot to the cloud APIs anyway and we can't, you know, change them. So um, it and, and talking to our own services is kind of like just like 20% of the work uh, the front end does. So I don't know if there's a big benefit. But it's funny that, you know, the front, the, 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 I think TypeScript and Kotlin, you, you notice that they have lots of similarities also in, in design and choices to some points. Like they're, they both feel very modern, you know, and inspired by kind of like the same experiences. Uh, yeah, I think they're both inspired by the fact that JavaScript we need to destroy. <laughs> um, sure. <laughs> And, and and one one last thing I want to mention is um, we mentioned we're running Spring Boot and we're running microservices and and we're of course stock feeding our own uh, product so uh, we're uh, using Cloud Foundry to deploy all our microservices which is like with Spring Boot coincidentally Cloud Foundry is also you know by Pivotal which which does uh, Spring or donate a lot of engineering effort to Spring so that that's a combination that works really really sweet. Uh, you know, it's, it does all the containerization and everything for you, and you just do a CF push from your your uh, uh, code code base uh, where you have the, the jar built, and it does all the things automatically for you, all the deployment, and that's really cool. And uh, with Kotlin, there's been no kind of like changes to the whole approach. You know, you could just build the same jars as we could. We we have a couple of projects and microservices that have like Java and Kotlin code in the same uh, uh, jar, and it just it just works, and that's that's really surprising, uh, uh, you know, and in a good way. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> and for me, it wouldn't be a choice. Like it's it's pretty clear that Kotlin is kind of like superior in in every way, or it feels to me yeah. at least. And and it's so easy to to switch to Kotlin. Yeah, yeah. You, you just can convert from class to class, and uh, all you have to do is add the according plugin to to Maven or Gradle, and then you can start converting step by step, and uh, that works really smooth. Cool. Well, uh, it's we're running out of time. Uh, it's been. Really awesome chatting with you guys. Thank you for having us. Yeah, thank you. <laughs>